Please, if you would, grab your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. That's where we'll begin today. It is good to hear so many voices. Good to see Stan. Just in time for baseball season. I halfway expected you to be wearing your usual jersey today, but maybe in a couple weeks, huh? Okay, all right. Oh. And uh, <clears throat> was talking with Wayne Bussian earlier, uh, well, I guess it was last week now, and of course plans change depending on a few things, but they are planning on being back a week from today, and he, he said, get ready, so <laughs> thought I should pass that along, and Hopefully that made you laugh, Wayne, so we'll see you next week. <clears throat> but Genesis 2 is where we'll start today. It's not, of course, where we'll finish. We'll eventually get back to 1 Corinthians, but this is where we'll be. And uh, before we get started, how about I open with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you so much for your kindness toward us. We see your kindness in so many ways, in so many areas of our lives if our eyes are open, if we're paying attention, we see so many ways that you've provided for us and you've protected us and you've stayed with us and encouraged us. What a blessing. And Lord, we thank you ultimately for the kindness most clearly shown in the gospel, that you demonstrated your own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, you died for us in our place for our sins, that we might have forgiveness and everlasting life. Because you rose again, our life is hidden in you, our life is Christ Himself, and we thank you in His name. And God, we ask that today as we gather under the name of Jesus Christ and His gospel, that we would understand more about who you are and about who we are and who you've created us to be. Give us a great study today, and I ask that though I am a sinner, undeserving in and of myself, that I would not get in the way of your text this morning, but that you would anoint me to preach and that your word would be clear to your people. And we all ask this in Jesus' name, amen. When you preach through the Bible one book at a time, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, you will get to passages that you wouldn't have picked out for yourself on any given Sunday. When you just preach topics or when you jump around from book to book throughout the Bible, it makes preaching very easy because you can just preach what you want. And what you want might not always be what God has for you. And in 1 Corinthians, today we're getting to a section that I wouldn't pick for myself. <laughs> uh, and then we're going to have some fun chapters, and then we're going to get to a lot of stuff I wouldn't pick for myself. But this is what God has for us. And our section today, when we get to, back to 1 Corinthians, our section today starts with the phrase, to the married. And as I was preparing, I thought, well, to the married, what does that even mean in our society today? Uh, someone I spoke to recently said, you can't assume that anybody under the age of 30 or anybody perhaps under the age of 40 in your congregation shares the same view of 
human relationships and sexuality as you do. (laughs) So we have to define these things. We have to define what marriage is. And I want to spend a good portion of the message, perhaps even more than half of the message, discussing and defining what is marriage according to God's Word. And that's why we're starting in Genesis 2. We must define marriage. There are some people that say marriage is an institution, and perhaps you've heard the joke, who wants to be in an institution, right? Well, what makes a marriage, really? If you were going to define this on your own, what makes a marriage? Many today see it as outdated. Many today see it as something that can be defined however we like. We could just put any type of activity or any type of relationship in there and call it marriage. Does the Bible really give us insight into these things? To a degree, yes. And we're going to start answering that today. So let's look in Genesis 2 together and see how God's definition for marriage is one man and one woman together as one flesh. Look at verse 24 with me. We looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago. Verse 24, here's the big idea. For this reason, a man, singular, shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, singular, and they shall become one flesh, singular. (laughs) The two people come together, one man, one woman come together, and they are one flesh. Anything else, any other type of relationship doesn't constitute a marriage. (laughs) You can't have one man and multiple women. You can't have one woman and multiple men. You can't have two men. You can't have two women. Those aren't marriages. God's design for marriage, and His design is all that matters here. We hopefully understand this. God has a copyright on the idea of marriage, the institution of marriage. He designed it. He gets to define it. One man and one woman coming together, being something new, one flesh together. And I was reading through Stuart Scott's excellent book, The Exemplary Husband, this week, and the first part of that book addresses this this issue of what is a marriage and what's the purpose of marriage. And he points out a few things from chapter 2 here. Let's look at verse 18 and read back down through 24. Genesis 2.18, "'The Lord God said, "'It is not good for the man to be alone. "'I will make him a helper.'" suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh." Three aspects that I want you to see in Genesis 2, three purposes for marriage. The first is companionship. You know that part of the story where Adam names the animals. And I've heard all sorts of crazy views on this. I've actually heard 
one false teacher, I want to clarify this is a false teacher, saying that God brought the animals to Adam to see what he would call them because God didn't know what they were. He made a horse. He didn't know it was a horse. So he took it to Adam, and Adam said, well, that's a horse. And then, oh, it's okay, it's a horse. Wild interpretation, wrong, false, damaging interpretation. I think typically what we think through in this scenario is that Adam saw all the animals and he was checking them out for himself maybe and thinking, well, none of them match me. (laughs) None of them are suitable for me because they don't look like me. I, I can't communicate with them. I can't have companionship with them. I can't have oneness with them. And perhaps that is, maybe even to a large degree, an aspect of what's going on. But I want you to also think about how when Adam was seeing these animals, he was seeing them in pairs, wasn't he? He was seeing them paired off already. They all already had complementary beings. And Adam didn't. He was alone. And God was showing Adam through this that it wasn't good that he was alone. Out of all these creatures, he was alone. God was leading him into this new thing he was doing and creating a woman to provide companionship for Adam. So companionship is a big aspect of that. Another reason, another purpose for marriage is the helper aspect. Look at verse 18 with me again. God says, it's not good that the man is alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And we know from biblical theology as we read through the rest of the Bible that the man and the woman, the man as the head of the home and the woman as the helper for man is a picture of Christ and the church. And there are many people out there today, particularly influenced by the feminist movement, who say, well, that is just a slavery-like relationship. You've got a master and a slave because she's just a helper. And that's how they want to frame God's design as saying, well, God has just created the man to, to crack a whip in the home and whatever he says goes. <laughs> I do marriage counseling on Thursday evenings. <laughs> well, that is not God's design. What we see in this being a picture of Christ in the church is that they are both servants for one another. Remember what Jesus said during his earthly ministry, Mark 10:45, very important verse. The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And as Paul is in Ephesians 5, writing out this letter to the Ephesians and explaining marriage, how marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, he says that the husband is to love his bride as Christ loved the church, meaning he will give himself up for her. It's sacrificial. So what you end up with in a Christian marriage are two servants that are fighting to wash each other's feet, serving one another. And what you end up with in godless worldly marriages, perhaps marriages birthed out of the feminist movement, is really two masters cracking the whip at each other. That's what you get outside of a scriptural marriage. Everyone is entitled to be served in that view. But in the Christian view, we serve one another. We serve one another. And there are distinct roles in that. But it's service at the heart of both of those roles. And thirdly, another final purpose here for marriage is, of course, procreation and sexual satisfaction. We talked about this quite a bit last week in the first five, or first nine verses, rather, of 1 Corinthians 7, 
The man and woman were to come together and to be fruitful and multiply, right? We know that from Scripture. That's in chapter 1. They are to be fruitful and multiply. And we see in Scripture that the sexual relationship is one reserved for marriage. It is one of the purposes of marriage. And we see in 2.24, again, this very important verse here in Genesis, that they become one flesh. And they become one flesh through this consummation of that aspect of marriage. There's a fundamental oneness that comes through physical union. And this is regardless of faith. This is regardless of marital status even. We looked at a couple of weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 6.16. It'll be up on the screen. Um, In this verse, Paul is talking about those who join themselves to temple prostitutes. And he says, do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? There's a oneness that comes through that action, regardless of faith. These temple prostitutes weren't Christians, and they certainly weren't married. But he's using the basis of Genesis 2.24, saying through that action, there's a oneness, a unity that is birthed. But I need to clarify and make sure, just in case you're going here in your mind, that that action doesn't result in a marriage, (laughs) It's an aspect of marriage, but participating in that type of activity doesn't result in an automatic marriage. So then, what constitutes an official marriage anyway? What is a marriage in God's eyes? That's probably a phrase you've heard before. We, we were married in God's eyes. Well, what does that mean? Can you, can you show me where God has said that? And that's where things can get pretty tricky. And this isn't just for Christians, of course. Marriage is something, it's a gift that God gives to the world, not just to Christians. So I want to read to you some quotes from an excellent article from gotquestions.org, got, G-O-T, questions.org. It's one of my favorite resources, a very trusted resource. And they, in this article, they're answering the question, what constitutes a marriage according to the Bible? Tyler, I think you bumped a light switch. There we go. (laughs) What constitutes a marriage according to the Bible? Listen to this first sentence. The Bible nowhere explicitly states at what point God considers a man and woman to be married. We have to face that. It doesn't say at this point, then these people are married. It doesn't say that explicitly. However, there are all kinds of identifiers in Scripture that we can bring together to help understand and to help formulate a theology of when two people are married. Before we give that answer, though, it it says here are the three most common viewpoints. So let's see if you have any of these preconceived notions. Here are the three most common viewpoints for what constitutes a marriage. First, God only considers a man and woman married when they are legally married. That is, when they become husband and wife in the eyes of the law. First option. So, when they get some sort of government certificate that says married. Secondly, a man and woman are married in God's eyes when they have completed some kind of formal wedding ceremony involving covenantal vows. So, at a church or some people get married up in the woods or something like that. Thirdly, God considers a man and a woman to be married at the moment they engage in sexual intercourse. And that's the one, of course, I just addressed. So what's the conclusion? What's the Bible's conclusion on these things? Here's the, uh, the final synopsis. This is a great article. You should read the whole article, but this is what they conclude with. So what constitutes a marriage in God's eyes? 
it would seem that the following principles should be followed. One, as long as the requirements are reasonable and not against the Bible, a man and a woman should seek whatever formal government, governmental recognition is available. It's important. This is important. We, of course, disobey governments when they violate what God has said. But we don't disobey governments whenever they're just being what God designed them to be, stewards, right? That's what governments are, stewards. And we see in our world that God has given our government stewardship in this realm. Now, things are headed toward a crash in this realm with our government leading this and stewarding this. But for the moment, it is good and right to be recognized by your government, your authority, as being legally married. It's good and right to do. Secondly, a man and a woman should follow whatever cultural, familial, and covenantal practices are typically employed to recognize a couple as officially married. There are different wedding practices that different people have in their cultures, in their families, in their churches, and those ceremonies are important. Those ceremonies express to the people attending that we are committed to one another. We are entering into this covenant together. We are committed to one another in this marital covenant. And thirdly, if possible, a man and a woman should consummate the marriage sexually, fulfilling the physical aspect of the one flesh principle. I thought that was a very reasonable definition. And of course, there are tons of variables in that. You always get the question, well, what about the people who live in some remote tribe out in Asia somewhere, and, you know, they don't have a government there, and they don't have a church there, can they get married? <laughs> well, that's for missionaries to that region to decide, okay? Not me. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I'm in Utah, not there, because I can't handle those types of questions. I don't know. But we recognize that these three aspects that ju we just listed off there, they're not just for Christians, this is a common grace institution, a common grace gift that God gives to people. And that's what constitutes a marriage. And marriage is a covenant for all who enter into it. Turn with me to Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi, we're going to look at chapter 2 and see God's words about marriage regarding it as a covenant as we continue to define this. What does it mean to be married? Malachi chapter 2. God speaking to Israel and addressing them with the way they've treated their marriages. We're going to start in verse 13. Malachi 2 verse 13. It says, This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit." And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. 
So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? There's so much to be said about this passage. We're just going to touch on a couple of key issues. In the nation of Israel, marriages were falling apart. The covenant was being broken left and right in marital relationships, and this led to a discipline from God. They were handling the covenant without proper reverence, and that led to a separation from God. You notice the first verses that I read there that the altar was being covered with tears because the Lord no longer regarded their offspring or accepted their sacrifice with favor. God was rejecting the sacrifice in Israel partly because of this issue. There were other things that were going on in the nation, but God is pointing this out and saying, this is something you were doing rebelliously, sinfully. It was wrong. They did not have proper reverence of the marital covenant. And in this passage, we have the most explicit statement from God on the subject of divorce. Right there in verse 16, God says, "'For I hate divorce.'" God calls for repentance from the nation, that they would repent of this because it was sinful in His sight. What they were doing was wrong and rebellious. Treating marriage this way was and is sinful. It's a covenant that is to be respected. It is a covenant that is to be cherished and protected. The unity and the oneness that comes from marriage is to be protected the most important human relationship we will have in our lives is found in the gift of marriage. Turn with me to the next book of the Bible. It's the New Testament, Matthew. So just turn a few pages over to Matthew 19. That's the easiest transition you've ever made from the Old Testament to the New Testament, isn't it? Just a couple pages over. Jesus was being questioned about divorce. And of course, Jesus, the one true God, He wrote the Torah, he knows the law, he knows the prophets, and he's going to give them a biblical answer. Starting at verse 3 with me, in Matthew 19, it says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Interesting question. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, stop right there. It's a valid question, isn't it? This is from Deuteronomy. There is permissible divorce in the Torah. If they're asking Jesus, can a man divorce his wife for any reason at all? And Jesus is saying, have you not read the law? And they're saying, yeah, we have. (laughs) It says in the law that a man may divorce his wife and this is how it should go. Well, what's Jesus' answer to this? Verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, 
Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So what Jesus is doing here is affirming Genesis. It's very important to recognize. He's not quoting some story in Genesis that could be interpreted this way or that way, depending on this, that, or the other thing. He's quoting on the action of God, creating male and female, referring to the beginning and saying this is the way it's supposed to be because of God's design. It is to be this way. Marriages are to reflect God's original design. If you don't like the Old Testament, you don't like Jesus. If you don't like Genesis, you don't like Jesus. Very important that we understand that. Jesus teaches from Genesis with authority because Genesis is the Word of God. Genesis has authority. And so we go back to Genesis to understand these things ourselves, what marriage is and what human relationships should look like. So Jesus emphasized the unity aspect of God's design, that the two would come together. This is verse 6 again. After he quotes Genesis 2.24, they are no longer two, but one flesh, and they should never be separated. It should never be broken apart. God's design is that this union would be for a lifetime. Jesus is here teaching that no person has the authority to break that covenant. No person has the authority to separate it. But God has brought them together. Let no man separate it. God has made them one through the covenant. Let no man break it. Strong teaching from Jesus. Because marriage is to be a primary and a permanent relationship. Primary and permanent for this life. In the book of Leviticus, in the law, those who defiled their marriage covenant got the death penalty. That's what happened in, in Israel, according to the law. That's how important this relationship is. So Jesus' plain teaching here is that marriages were not to be broken with the issuance of one exception that he gives, except for immorality. And we'll talk more about that next week. Notice, too, that Jesus says in response down in verse 8 that divorce was permitted because of a fault with man. A couple of words to highlight. It was permitted. Divorce was never encouraged. Divorce was never commanded or instructed to Israel as a whole for the way they were to live their lives. But divorce was permitted. And it was permitted not because there was a fault with God's design, but because there's a fault with man, right? That's why divorce is permitted. Now, in the one exception of this passage, the one exception that Jesus gives, it's a sin that, that allows for someone to be loosed from the marriage covenant, the sin of immorality. And in all those cases where they're wrongfully divorced, that wrongful divorce is a sin. So we can say that divorce is always the result of sin, isn't it? Always. Because God's design holds true unless sin comes along and breaks it apart. The unity that God gives in marital relationships is worthy of the utmost reverence. It is to be protected. The oneness that God gives is to be protected. And I, I don't really care if I sound like a broken record on this issue because we have to have this in our heads. That unity must be revered and protected.
So now, with an understanding of what marriage is, the covenantal aspect in particular, let's go to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to attempt to cover verses 10 and 11 today. Now that we understand more of what was in Paul's mind when he wrote to the married, let's read what his instructions are. Really, the Lord's instructions, as we'll find out momentarily. 1 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 10. Paul writes, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. To the married, these instructions are given from the Lord. It is important to note, of course, that these are instructions from the Lord, the Lord Jesus Himself. Paul is not issuing a personal opinion on the matter. If He did issue a personal opinion on the matter, He's writing as an apostle, and so we still obey the personal opinions that are inspired as He's writing in that office. But we see in the verse previous that Paul said, it's better for them to marry than to burn with passion. That's something that's issued as Paul's opinion on the matter. He's, he's regarding it as better to marry than to burn with passion. And here he's kind of making a distinction saying, this isn't something that I'm saying out of my own personal opinion. This is actually from the Lord. And we just looked at that passage, didn't we, in Matthew 19, from the Lord that the wife is not to leave her husband. She should not leave her husband. He's drawing from the very teachings of Christ as Christ was teaching about the way marriages should look in Israel. Paul certainly knew what Jesus taught, and he certainly knew the exception that Jesus gave there in Matthew 19, also in Mark chapter 10. But the command that the Lord gives here is that Christian marriages are not to be broken by either spouse. Look down at verse 12 with me where we'll start next week. Paul starts off that section by saying, "'But to the rest I say,' not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with them, he must not divorce her. In verse 12, he's starting a section talking about mixed faith marriages with a a believer with an unbeliever. And here in verses 10 and 11, he's clearly talking about Christian marriages to the married, those who are both Christians who have come together in the marital covenant. He's got Christians in view here, important to note. And he gives two thoughts. He says, the wife should not leave her husband. The word he uses there is the word leave, and you look down at verse 11, the word he uses for husband is the word divorce. These are two different words, and I want to talk about those two words so we can understand them a bit better. When it says the wife should not leave her husband, this is the same word found in Matthew 19 that we just read. When Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man separate. It's the same word. The wife should not separate from her husband, it says here. That's the instruction. The word for leave means to tear apart or to break. In the New Testament, the majority of cases of this word have to do with a geographical separation, an actual physical leaving. There is a sense in which there's a spiritual element to this in some cases. In Romans 8, this word is used when the hypothetical question is asked or the rhetorical question is asked, 
Who shall separate us from the love of God? That's the same word. But the majority of the time, we see this being a geographical, physical separation. And we shouldn't read our concept of separation into this passage. We have today uh, a status that you can mark on forms as separated, as something that's distinct from uh, another type of status, married or divorced. And that's not what Paul had in mind here. This separation was to divorce. He's saying the woman should not divorce her husband by physically leaving him, by physically running out on him. She shouldn't leave. And the husband, it says at the end of verse 11, is not to divorce his wife. And this isn't the common word for divorce. This isn't the word for divorce that Jesus used in Matthew 19. (laughs) But this word divorce, it's a verb, and it means to send someone away. It's the other side of that coin. The woman leaves, the woman abandons, the woman walks out. Well, the husband isn't to tell the woman she should leave. The husband isn't to cause the woman to walk out. The husband is not to initiate this physical separation. This is truly referencing a divorce as it was with the woman. The husband was not to send off the woman he had covenanted with. The idea is that neither the Christian husband nor the Christian wife is to initiate a divorce. That's the teaching here. When believers come together in marriage, they are one. Just as they are one individually with Jesus. We read this in 1 Corinthians 6, right? Just as you become one spirit with Christ, when you join yourself to another, you are one spirit with that person. We understand our closeness and unity with Christ, and we should see that reflected in marriage also. There's a oneness and unity that is not to be broken. Because the oneness that is found in marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, which is a testimony to others. It says something to the world around us about our faith. It's a gift from God that is to be protected. We're supposed to lay down our lives to protect. We should not think about these issues selfishly or self-centeredly. I don't know if that's an appropriate adverb, but I just made one. We aren't to consider our needs as more important than anyone else's. We are to have the mind of Christ, Philippians 2, who he counted other people's needs as more important than his own. That's in every area of life. Your marriage will be a better marriage if you consider your spouse's needs above your own. Your marriage will be better. That is God's design. Two servants fighting to serve one another more. And so a Christian marriage is not to be broken. Neither spouse is to seek to tear apart the covenant. But there is this parenthetical phrase right here in the middle of the section, isn't it? Isn't there? The beginning of verse 11 in parentheses, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. It's an interesting clause that's included here. But if she does, what does that mean? <laughs> he just said, Jesus says, don't. Why are we entertaining the idea of someone doing it? But if, but if. Well, things to notice. Firstly, this isn't affirmed as a holy action or a good action. He's stating that it might happen. And in their case, perhaps it already had happened in the Corinthian church before they got this letter. Perhaps it was already going on. And so he's stating it as just a fact of reality if it does happen. It's not 
affirmed as holy or good. The Lord says, do not do this. So he's saying, here's what happens if someone rebels against God's command. Here's what happens if someone sins against Jesus's instruction. To leave, Paul is stating through, from the Lord that to leave in this instance is sinful. It goes against his instruction. So the first thing we need to do then, if it does happen, if it does happen, the first thing that needs, needs to come about is repentance. If one does leave, if there is a separation that occurs, that goes against the commands found right here in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11, if someone goes against that command, the first thing is repentance. All rebellion must be recognized as such for forgiveness to be possible. This is not the unforgivable sin, by the way. Some people kind of treat it that way. Like this is the biggest sin that there could ever be. Well, that's not true. It is it does complicate things. It makes life very complicated, but it's not the unforgivable sin. Even so, it is sin, and it must be recognized and repented of. And then there are two options left for the one who divorces. We see them there at the first half of verse 11. Two options that are left for the one who deserts. That's who we're talking about. The, he says, the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does, this one who initiates the divorce, what are the two options? The first option is to remain unmarried. That word unmarried is used four times in the New Testament, and all of them are right here in 1 Corinthians 7. All four instances of the term unmarried. Paul is saying, don't enter into another covenant. Don't leave your spouse and go enter into another covenant, because God is still recognizing that you are bound to the one you left. You can't go on and break it, dear Christian. You can't just up and leave and go find another. But if you do, remain unmarried. Jesus' is teaching in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10 that we looked at moments ago is if someone does this, goes off and enters into another covenant, they're committing adultery because God has not recognized the ending of that last covenant. So they're committing adultery. It's grave, serious matter. Secondly, if the person isn't going to remain unmarried, the other option that Paul gives is to be reconciled to her husband. Notice it still says her husband. It doesn't say to the one who was her husband. Be reconciled to her husband. Reconciliation is a difficult but beautiful word, isn't it? Reconciliation always requires sacrifice. This word that's used for reconciliation, or it's the verb, reconciled, every other time it's used in the New Testament, think about this, every other time it's used in the New Testament, whether in verb form or noun form, it is in reference to man being reconciled to God. Every other time. That's how serious this is. And we understand in the gospel how much sacrifice was required for man to be reconciled to God, don't we? And how much love was needed, how much grace and mercy and patience. The other option besides remaining unmarried is to be reconciled. And there are so many who say, never, never ever will I be reconciled instead of being open and pursuing gospel application. 
What would the gospel have us to do? The love that we find in the gospel, what would there be for us in this instance? Our marital relationships communicate our faith to the world. They really do. And you know this is true because we're pretty quick with polygamy to say polygamy is wrong because marriage is a reflection of Christ and the church. Christ doesn't have two, three, four, five, six churches, does he? He has one church and he's committed to. So we recognize in that conversation using Christ and the church as a picture is a very biblical and a very fair response. But what does divorce and remarriage say about our faith? What does divorce and remarriage make the gospel look like? It's a hard question. And there are all sorts of complicating factors. Next week, the passage gets more complicated. Before today, we're talking about Christian marriages, a Christian man and a Christian woman in Christ together, in covenant together. They should not divorce. That covenant should not be broken these are the Lord's instructions. Their union reflects the gospel. And we don't want our marriages to fail. We want our marriages to reflect God's design in the garden and to reflect Jesus in the church. Jesus doesn't divorce his church and go find another. And that's not because we're worthy, is it? If it was based on our worthiness, we would have been left in the dust a long time ago. But Jesus remains faithful to us because of his sacrificial love, because of his grace, because of his mercy. That's how we need to see marriage. A oneness that is worth protecting with all that we have to reflect the love of God and to cherish the gifts that he gives. And it's going to take more than you could ever have. You have to have God working through you. You have to have the Spirit of God guiding you, directing you, giving you wisdom. Because you can't do it on your own. You can't. But God through you can do the impossible, can't He? Because all things are possible with God. Even healing relationships, keeping relationships together. He can do it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the hard teachings of Scripture that aren't hard to you, but are hard to us. Give us your perspective, give us your understanding and wisdom that we would cherish these gifts and we would cherish your word and that we would cherish your instructions, that we would not take lightly any covenant, the covenant you've made with us or the covenant we make with others, but that we would live in those covenants as your image bearers reflecting redemption and love and grace and forgiveness. Give us that heart individually as members of your body and give us that heart collectively as your body that the gospel would prevail at home and in the church and in this community through strong families who confess Christ and protect the unity that you've given them in marriage. In Jesus' name, amen.